Hey, Matthew 25 this morning, 6,000 years ago, approximately in the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. He made dry ground. He made vegetation. He made sea creatures. He made flying creatures, livestock, beasts of the earth. He made man and woman, put them over, put them in dominion over the earth and the creatures on the ground and in the air, the fish of the sea, every living thing that moves. God take a look, took a look at everything he'd made and he said, yeah, this is very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And then Adam and Eve, they're doing their thing in the garden. They're living their life, the good life. When along comes a serpent, more cunning and crafty than any other beast of the field that God has made. And he convinces Adam and Eve to eat of the one fruit that God specifically told Adam, don't eat. And we know this story, right? Adam and Eve are hiding. God comes walking along in the cool of the day, and he knows what happens. He knows what's already happened, and this is not good. And God looks to the serpent, and he says this to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So Adam and Eve, they get the boot from the garden, and from that point on, Throughout the whole Old Testament, as we read, there's just a longing and desire for the one to come who's the snake crusher. The one who is to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And so we read through the Old Testament looking for that one to come. It's not Noah. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It isn't any of the judges like Samson or Gideon. It isn't David. Remember King David we've just been talking about for the past 49, well, not quite all 49 weeks, but... We just finished talking about him in the book of 2 Samuel. It's not David's son, Solomon. It's not any of the prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah. But all along throughout the Old Testament, as you're reading, you, there's hints. There's hints and clues of that there's one still to come who will redeem the people, who will be the crusher of the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 53, I'm not even going to read it. Just go home and read the whole chapter. Isaiah 53, Daniel 7, we talked about Daniel 7 last week a little bit. It says this in verse 13, I believe it'll say, There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we get to the New Testament. And behold, Jesus is born. God become man, born to a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. And the one that we've been looking for this whole time leading up to the New Testament has come. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is the Son of God, born to bear our iniquity and be the sacrificial lamb in my place, be the sacrificial lamb in your place 
for the sin that you cannot bear. The Lamb of God was led to the slaughter. He was put to death. He willingly laid down his life for you so that you may have everlasting life. And there's a curtain, there's a divide, a curtain between you and God that's preventing you from accessing God, like sin, call it sin. But the minute that Jesus laid down his life, that curtain was torn into two, top to bottom, so that you may come into fellowship with our King, our Father, Yahweh, our God. And all that you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Because three days after Jesus gave up his spirit, he was brought back to life. He had a little walkabout around Israel until, poof, he ascended up into heaven where he goes to prepare a place for us until he comes again. And I say all this off the bat because this is the most important thing Today, we're going to look at three things to do while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Number one, be saved. It'll come up on the screen if you like to take notes. Number two, be prepared. Number three, be busy. Number one, be saved, friends. If you do nothing else today, this morning, for the next hour, I hopefully won't be that long, but I was saying I've got a lot of extra words in my notes today. If you do nothing else today, be saved. Make sure that you are saved. Make sure you know where you are going when you die. Make sure that you're right with God. Last week, Matt took us through a prophecy update, and we had to look at things going on in the world. And it hopefully, hopefully, this is what it did for me. It just made me go, huh. Things are happening in the world, friends. Israel is a nation again. There's wars and rumors of wars Worldwide systems are being put into place that just make you go, say it with me, huh. <laughs> but Blake, you might be thinking to yourself in your brain, you go, people have been saying this kind of stuff for thousands of years, you know, even, even most recently, we got World War I, World War II, the great church revival about 40 years ago. And, and what's the deal? We're still here. We don't really think Jesus is coming again soon, do we? Yes, we do. He is. Did you, hey, did you do your homework this week? Did you know you had homework this week? This is like a bad nightmare. You, what? We had homework? If you don't know, every week, midweek, we put out uh, like pre-sermon Devo primer on our YouTube. So if you didn't know that, you now do. So you got no excuse for next week. Midweek, we put out a mid-sermon Devo. Usually it's Matt that does it, but this week it was me. And in that mid-sermon Devo, I asked you to go read Matthew 24 and 25 in preparation for this morning. And if you read chapter 24, which I'm just going to assume you all did, you'll have read this. Wait, what was I laughing for? <laughs> you'll have read this, Matthew 24, verse 36. It says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You don't know what day Jesus is coming. 
Heck, even, it says even not even Jesus knows the Father only. So stay awake, for you do not know. Classic preacher joke, which I was going to do. I was going to do unironically, but I'll do it ironically, is to go, Jesus could be coming now. Now. Anyways. Now. Friends, Jesus is coming again soon. And we saw that last week during the prophecy update, didn't we? We see this today as we look at scripture. And that's why the title of today's message is While We Wait. Look at that nice little graphic Peter made. Man, we're moving up in the world. While we wait for Jesus's return, you need to be, you need to be doing three things that we're going to see today. You need to be saved. Number one, you need to be prepared. And you need to be busy. And all that preamble to say the most important thing, be saved. Friends, I won't be offended if you just rest your eyes after this. Don't go to sleep. Just give them a rest. But hear this, and I implore you to hear this. Be sure that you are saved. Be sure that you have repented of your sins, that you've asked for forgiveness of the sin that you've done this week, because you just never know when Jesus is going to come again. Now, no, not now. That leads us into Matthew 25, as Jesus tells us through the parables the other two points. Well, not yet. Stand with me, will you? As you don't rest your eyes. Because that was just my introduction. <laughs> and we're going to get into the book of Matthew chapter 25. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that we can believe in you, Lord. That we can take your word as truth. Uh, thank you that you came and died for us, Lord. What a gift you've given us. That you came to the cross. You laid down your life, you shed your blood for us, and you formed a new covenant with the Father. A new covenant that says all we have to do is confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in our heart that God raised you from the dead and we will be saved. And we just thank you for that new covenant that you formed with us, Father. Just bless this time as we go through the rest of your word and eagerly await your coming return soon. In your name, amen. Amen. Grab a seat. Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. Hopefully that got the blood going. Matthew 25 verse number one says this, one through six. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So this parable is relating to a Jewish wedding, traditional Jewish wedding. Traditional Jewish wedding went like this. There's kind of three stages. The first was the engagement period. And that's when there's kind of like an agreement between I don't really know how it all worked, but between the fathers and between the two that, yes, we're going to get married, there was, a, there was a dowry paid usually, and the marriage was set up. They usually had arranged marriages back then. Uh, and then the second stage is the betrothal period, which was like a formal wedding ceremony, kind of what we know of as now is what our wedding would be, a, a wedding ceremony, modern day ceremony. And then the third thing was the marriage. And so after the betrothal, the man would go away, he'd get the house ready, he'd get everything prepared, and then after about a year, 
the bridegroom would come back to collect his wife, where they would then go have a feast, a dinner, a big party for a week, and then, boom, officially married. You know what happens next, you sickos. And so as the bridegroom is coming, it would be the job of the best man to go ahead and yell in the streets that the bridegroom's coming. He would have to yell in advance to prepare the the uh, bride and her attendants. And apparently in that day, I don't know if this is true or not again, but apparently one of the greatest dishonors of that day was was for the bride and her attendants to be caught sleeping when the bridegroom showed up. And so the the bridegroom's best man would go ahead and yell and shout, and, hey, get ready, he's coming, he's coming. And so look at what happens. Verse 6 again through to the end of the parable. It says this, But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So the bridegroom comes, and only five are ready. Only five were able to go out and meet the bridegroom. Now, on the surface, when you actually first are reading through it, it actually appears that they're all, all ten are ready at first, right? They all have their lamps they're all in the right place. They actually, all of them get drowsy and fall asleep. But here's the difference. Is that when the announcement of the bridegroom comes, only half of them have enough oil to trim their lamps to go out and meet the coming party. Church, are you prepared? You look prepared. You show up to church every week. You come to Wednesday night study. I don't hear you cursing or swearing or, you know, in general, you look prepared. You look on the surface that you're ready, but are you? Look at verse 8 and 9 again. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Friends, you can't borrow anyone else's oil. Well, my mom was a pretty good Christian, so I'll be good to go. I was baptized as a baby, so I'll be good to go. My wife is a pretty good Christian, so I'll just share some of her Christianese stuff. But look at what happens to the ones who just simply looked prepared. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. There are no second chances. Once the door is shut, that is it. There's no sharing of your faith. You can't live on the fact that when Jesus comes, you'll just siphon a little bit from your neighbor's house out of the neighbor's car or something. You know, when I was in uh, about 10 years ago, going to school in North Van at Capilano. Uh, I lived in a place with four of my friends and we rented a place in North Van. And right near the end of our time there, about the past last three days renting there, school was basically up for the last few days there. Uh, the power goes out and we're what's going on. We go out and check. Well, they've 
shut our power off. They've locked the meter. <laughs> we have no power. We have no hydro. And our landlord was a nightmare to deal with. So we thought, well, it's only a few days. We'll be okay. Let's just stick it out. We had gas, so we still had hot water. We still had a stove. We were fine. We thought, ah, we'll just stick it out. We'll, we'll be okay. We were 18, 19, it, whatever. It's only a few days. We're moving out. We can deal with it. So I come home one night after school, and also I was amongst those that group. I was like the only one that actually went to school. <laughs> but so I wasn't amongst good company. So I go to school. I come home, um, and it's kind of dark out at that point, and um, I see all my friends huddled around a TV playing video games. I go, oh, how are they doing this? And I follow the extension cord, and it's... Is there a statute of limitations on this? I don't know. But it's strung across the deck, over the fence, plugged into the neighbor's outdoor plug. <laughs> but friends, you can't do that when it comes to knowing Jesus. You can't just plug your extension cord into the neighbor's, neighbor's house thinking, oh, I'll just take a little bit of this for myself. You know, you guys and girls... Ladies and gentlemen here at CTK, you are uh, very tough to preach to. And I'll tell you why you're tough to preach to. Because you're so smart, you guys. And that's actually a fact. I don't just say that to butter you up. Well, a little bit to butter you up. But you guys are smart here. And you love the word of God here. You read your Bible regularly. You aren't just satisfied sitting in the pew here, listening to someone up here ramble on. And just take what we say as gospel. You guys are thinkers. And it, uh, it keeps us on our toes up here as we speak to you guys. And you might be sitting here going, well, Blake, you don't understand what you're talking about. You know, Jesus specifically picked 10 virgins for the story. And the number five is significant. And the reason it happened at midnight is significant. And the oil and the lamps mean blah, 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 blah. Which maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I, I, I'd love to actually... We aren't here to get too hot and heavy in the theology and metaphors today or deep theological meaning. We can, I'd love to chat with you after church today or even better, come to prayer tonight and we can talk about uh, some of that deeper theological meaning. But I just want to focus on the point of Jesus' first parable and it's this, verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be ready, be prepared. But how? How do I make sure I'm prepared for the Lord's coming? Is a logical question from that. Because it's easy to fall asleep, isn't it? For some of us, it's much easier than others. It's easy to get in the rut of life and then realize you've been going to church for 30, 40, 50 years and you've got your lamp, but there's no oil in it. Or heck, it's even easy for me. I can get so busy with work or with my dog that I can realize, whoa, it's been all day. Two days, I haven't even thought about Jesus. Man, remembering that Jesus is coming again soon. Two ways to keep yourself prepared. And I'm just going to make an assumption here that you guys already have Christ at the center of your life. Step one, remember, is always be saved. That's step one. You've got the lamp. You're waiting, but you've fallen drowsy in the waiting. So how do we make sure we don't fall drowsy? Two ways. The word, the first way is the word, the second way is prayer. Look at the word, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Joshua 1.8 tells us about the word. It says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. How do we make sure we don't fall drowsy? Read your Bible. Simple. Read your Bible every day. Start with just one chapter a day if it seems overwhelming. Dedicate scripture to memory. The written word leads us to what? The living word, Jesus Christ. Another way to make sure you don't fall drowsy is to stay in prayer. Listen to Ephesians 6.18. It says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Or Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer. Pray. Pray praying trains us to, to know the power and glory of God and turns his ear toward action in our lives. So friends, be prepared be watching for the coming of Christ because you know neither the day nor the hour. While we wait, we need to be saved. Number one, I'm going to pound this into your brains. Be saved. If you, this is so important. Be saved. <laughs> be saved. Be prepared. Be busy. Look at verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the first five, who had, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Just stop right there. So a talent was a weight in your footnotes. In my footnotes, it might say it was a monetary unit worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So quite a bit of value here that's being given to the, each servant. One servant got five talents. One servant got two talents. One servant got one talent. And each one entrusted with a certain amount according to their individual ability. And so the first two guys, they took the talents and they got to work. The one with five, it says he at once went and traded and made five more. So also the one with two, he went and did something and he made two more. But the one who received one, he went out back. He dug a hole like my dog would, stuck the talent in it, buried it up and hid it. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Side note, 2,000 years starts to feel like a long time, doesn't it? Even since I last ate, feels like a long time ago. Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. So his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, 
saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to him who has the 10 talents. For everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. For, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So after a time, the servant comes back. He checks in. Sorry, the master comes back, checks in with the servants. And to the first guy, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Now you will be set over much. Enter into the joy of your, ma enter, enter into the joy of your master. The second guy, to the one who had two and made two more, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. Now you will be set over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he gets to the third guy who just had one talent, who went and hid it and brings back just the one. And he says, here, have this back. You entrusted me with it. I went and hid it. And now, here, I'll give it right back to you. And the master says, you wicked and slothful servant. And the master takes the one talent and gives it to the ten, and the worthless servant is cast into outer darkness. Each man is judged individually here. They aren't judged as a team. Each is judged according to their own action, and the fault found in the one man who buried his talent isn't because he had little. Rather, the fault is found because he did nothing with it. Your account to the Lord will not be based on how much your local church did. It will be based on you yourself. And so the sin of omission here appears to be just as large as the sin of commission. God has given you ability. He's given you actionable qualities and to bury them and do nothing is just as dreadful as committing an act of sin. The book of James says, show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So, be busy. This leads us to the question, well, how can I make sure I'm being busy without being stupidly busy? Just busy for busy's sake. Well, the first way is fellowship. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, through your loving relationships within the body of Christ, we can use what God has given us to build each other up and encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near towards the return of Jesus Christ. The second thing we can do to keep us busy is witnessing. Matthew 4.19 says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 28.19-20, this is Jesus speaking, says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Jesus has given us a task to not keep this understanding to ourselves, but to share the good news of Jesus Christ to the world and specifically to make disciples. And this isn't just a task of the preacher, boy standing up here. This is the task of you, friends. <laughs> this is your job. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that you're saved by works. There's a reason number one is be saved. <laughs> Trust in Jesus. And I believe as you follow the steps one through three, that it'll naturally lead to the next one. When you get saved, you will want to read your Bible and pray. When you read your Bible and pray, you'll want to encourage brothers and sisters. And naturally, the overflow of your life will lead to sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And so I'm not saying that you're saved by works by any means. That's not what I'm saying. But the more that I think about it, and actually even this past week has made me think about it more going through this text. I don't think everyone will get to heaven and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you get in? Yes. Because you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And Jesus intercedes for you through the blood of the lamb. But if you're like servant number three who took what God has given you, and you've gone out to the back 40 and hidden it, you're not going to be waltzing in, receiving crowns upon crowns upon crowns. Did you know there's three judgments still to come? The first is we know as the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, at the rapture, you'll come before the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll be judged based on your works. This isn't to decide whether you get in or not. But there's a judgment to receive rewards based on your works. The second is the great white throne judgment we know of in Revelation chapter 20. This is after the millennial reign. All those dead and alive, other than those raptured earlier, they come before Jesus and he judges them against the names in the Lamb's book of life. And then the third one we have is the final judgment, which is actually we're going to look at right here, Matthew 25, pretty quick. And now there's a bit of controversy amongst uh, commenters, commentators as to when this seems to take place um, but and who exactly it takes place amongst. But it appears here, and I agree with it, that it takes place uh, pre-millennial reign, post-tribulation period. Tribulation, seven years of tribulation period ends. Jesus comes again with all of us. And there's a time of what is known as the final judgment here. So let's take a look. We don't have a ton of time, like I was saying, but we're just going to address a couple things quickly in the final comments of Jesus's Olivet Discourse here. Last bit of 25, verse 31. It says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to thee, to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus comes back and all the nations are brought before him. And when it comes to nationalities, God's concerned with just two. You're not concerned with whether you're German or Canadian. He's concerned with two, Israel and everyone else. So when the word nation is said here, typically in the Bible, the word nation refers to anyone that isn't Israel, Gentiles. And they're brought before Jesus, and Jesus begins putting the sheep on the right, the goats on the left. And um, to the sheep, Jesus says this. He says, come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Why? Well, because he gave me food when I was hungry, drink when I was thirsty, uh, clothed me when I was naked, and, and so on. And, and the nations here, they, they have no idea what Jesus is saying, and they don't understand. When did we do that, Jesus? When did we do all these things? And Jesus responds that you did to the least of my brothers, you did to me. And so many take this as a reason. They say, see, we got to feed the poor because we might be, that might be Jesus there and the poor. And I don't disagree. Yes, we need to look after those that are having justice in our society. We need to look at the, after the widow and, and the poor. But I agree with many commenters that would say this isn't speaking of that. This is speaking of Gentile nations showing favor to the people of Israel. During the tribulation period, the people of Israel are going to experience great, great trouble. And there will be Gentile nations during that time that show favor towards Israel. And to them, Jesus rewards at the end of the tribulation period. Now, is there saving by works here? No, but it is by their works that he, he talks about. It's them showing their faith by their works to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And look at verse 41 there of chapter 25 of what will happen to those nations and people that pass by Israel. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for you and for me. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But the unfortunate truth is that a large part, a large amount of mankind is going to be joining the devil in eternal fire. You know, I've gotten a new, a bit of a little interest in the past few months. I've always been kind of interested in aviation, uh, but the past few months I've, airplanes, helicopters, whatever, but there's been a bit of an uptick. I don't know why. I don't know what's got in me, but all of a sudden I've gotten a bit more of an interest in aviation things. And so Southern Airways Flight 242, on April, 24, April 4th, 1977, they're flying Alabama to Atlanta, 
as they're flying, they're flying through a storm, they experience a total engine failure. Both engines fail uh, after flying through a storm that had baseball-sized hail. And yeah, went right into the engines, blew up the engines, no good. And so as they begin gliding down over Georgia, they're forced to have an emergency landing and they see a small rural road in Georgia. Small town, not much bigger than, I don't know, Kelowna? Maybe that's a good example. I just thought of Carol and Kevin, so I saw just Kelowna and I thought, yeah, that's a good example of about the size of Kelowna. So not big state, not major highways, you know, fairly small rural. And they're, they're, they're in a certain rural part of the town. So it's even smaller than the major, uh, major roads they would have in this place. And so these pilots begin gliding down. They're forced to land on this small rural Georgia road. And at some point they land on the road. They're going along. Their left wing clips a gas station, sends them into a field. Airplane breaks into five pieces. Uh, 63 out of the 83 people on board die. Nine people on the ground die. A family of seven was pulling out of a parking lot when they were struck by the plane landing on the road, just out of the blue. Family of seven just going to the... Uh, they could have just been going to the grocery store. I don't know. They're just pulling out of a parking lot. And they're struck by the plane and they all die. Friends, you never know when something's going to happen. Jesus is coming soon. Be saved, be prepared, be busy. Not long before Flight 242 crashed, not long before they came in on the Georgia road, a mother and kids were outside playing in their front yard and uh, the husband's at work and he uh, gives them a call, gives his wife and kids a call because he heard on the radio that there's a major hailstorm coming their way and that they better get inside because major hailstorm apparently the size of baseballs are coming down and not much later flight 242 lands right in front of their house had it not been for that warning from the husband that whole family could be dead as well and friends this is your phone call today if you aren't saved today this is a warning do you know where you are going if you die today do you know where you are going if jesus comes back not now. Be saved, friends. Be saved. Hell wasn't made for you or for me, but God gives us the free choice, and making the choice of either turning away from the free gift isn't something that he's going to force upon you. For most of us here, and I think for most of us, this is a call of exhortation. Friends, Jesus is coming again soon. This is something to be excited about, and we saw it last week with the prophecy update. And we continue to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Friends, number one, be saved. Number two, be prepared. And number three, be busy. I'm going to call the worship team up here. We're going to sing one more song here as we wrap up. Will you stand with me as I close us in a prayer this morning? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for just the reminder that you are coming again soon. And this is an awesome thing to think about. This is good news that you're coming again soon. Lord, help us um, in our life not to fall drowsy. How easy it is to just live our lives and get distracted and uh, just go day by day and just forget, man, Jesus, you're coming again soon. 
just how easy it is to forget what you've done for us on the cross, how it should have been me hanging on that cross, me in, the, in my sin should have been on that cross, but Jesus, you took my place. And what a gift that is, Lord. What a gift from the Father that you sent your Son to die on the cross for me. That it, death has been defeated and no longer do I have to be afraid, Lord. I know where I'm going. When you come again soon, Jesus, I know where I'm going. And we just thank you for that, Lord. Help me stay awake this week. Help me be prepared. Help me be busy, Lord. Help me go about the work of the kingdom. We want your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen.